Welcome to Martyr She Wrote. I'm Anna Clark Miller, and this is a podcast on religious trauma, so consider this your trigger warning. Let's dive into a topic that's serious as hell. Hey, everybody. Today is officially our last episode of season one of Martyr She Wrote. And uh, we're just going to take a little break, but we will definitely be back. And today I wanted to have Marcus, my partner, back on. Marcus, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I'm excited to kind of debrief the season and talk about some of your guests and talk about some of the topics and just uh, let's do a a summary. Yeah. This episode is the Cliff Notes version for anyone who's going to take a test about this podcast, but didn't want to listen to every episode. They can just listen to this one. Yeah, it's the TLDR of the podcast. Good. So at the very beginning, we had Catherine Keller on and and she did a great job of just sort of giving an overview of the topic of religious trauma. And so she she's a, a religious trauma therapist. She's actually a coworker of mine. Um, and so she did a good job of sort of explaining the psychological impacts of religious trauma and why this is such an important thing for us to be paying attention to. But what stood out to me is over the last year is kind of you've been working on this and you've been diving into religious traumas at the very beginning when you started diving into it I was like yeah definitely people have religious trauma but you know not me too much (laughs) and then as you interviewed different guests and kind of unpacked all the different elements of religious trauma I've come from like no I'm fine to oh man some of that stuff maybe did affect me a little bit to oh my gosh I actually I didn't have a very good experience in religion. <laughs> this wasn't very good for me. I know I've I've definitely noticed that too. It's been a journey like for both of us I think to just sort of acknowledge the extent of the damage that was done, but also like how much better we feel now. Yeah, we're in a much better place now both of us. I think there's also an element of people think of trauma like a light switch or like a binary, like you do have PTSD or you don't have PTSD. And that's just not how it works. Uh, Everybody has trauma. The question is just how much trauma do you have? And it's a spectrum. And so everybody, if you've attended any sort of a religious group, you probably have some religious trauma. Hopefully it's just a little bit and you can kind of work through it with a normal like counselor or therapist or something. But for some of us, it's a lot bit. Yeah. And uh, there's also different kinds of recovery for you wherever you are. Like if you think I don't have it bad enough, quote, to like go to therapy, like, hey, that's okay. That doesn't mean you don't get to do any recovering. You can still listen to podcasts. (laughs) I'm working on a workbook right now for religious trauma survivors to just kind of go through on their own and reflect and stuff. And so there's, there's stuff out there. That's cool. And there's definitely some people who either they can't afford therapy or, you know, they had a bad experience in therapy, especially if they went to maybe a non-licensed or maybe a church therapist that maybe didn't have their best intentions in mind. Yeah. Yeah. It happens. Well, your next guest was Jenna, who is a current religious leader. 
What made you want to invite her on the podcast? Yeah, Jenna Sullivan. So I met her a couple of years ago and she is just the coolest pastor I think I've ever met. Just really fun to hang out with, so down to earth, and also just so authentic with her beliefs and with, you know, treating everybody with respect. So the conversation with Jenna was about just what it's like being a religious leader and trying to avoid some of the like common pitfalls that end up like pushing churches to a really toxic place where people are getting traumatized. And so we talked a bit about like, what's a narcissistic leader and how do they become that way? Um, and I really liked the the conversation that we had just about like, potentially that being in church leadership is sort of like an open door for narcissism, because if you have a bunch of people hanging on your every word, that is going to start getting to your head after a while. How could it not go to your head if you say you are even at just like a medium sized church, there's like 200, 300 people there and 20 of them come up to you after the service to tell you how great it was and how compelling you were and how much they cried and felt. Uh huh. And it's like, if that happens to you on a weekly basis, sometimes twice a week, depending on when, how often you're preaching. And then you mix in all the other church connections you have and everybody's kind of, for lack of a better word, fawning over you. Uh -huh. That's going to do something to your brain. That's going to activate something that maybe shouldn't be activated in a human brain. Yeah. Well, it's, I think it's just like celebrity of any kind. It's just another form of celebrity and definitely has the potential to go to a dark place if you're not being intentional about it. Well, Jenna had a strategy for how to prevent that in her own life that I thought was pretty good. Uh, she talked about when people come up to her and sort of give her that adoration, she like deflects it, like kind of a Tai Chi. She's like, you know what? I loved the way the worship pastor did this one song, or I loved, I couldn't have done that without the guys in the back doing the sound. You wouldn't even know that, the, what the, like she just deflects it and points it somewhere else to maybe someone who gets overlooked uh, in a normal Sunday. And I thought that was very classy and very psychologically aware. Yeah. Yeah. I think as long as you can do that in a sincere way, that doesn't seem like, oh no, I surely you're, you're not praising me. I don't deserve that, you know, but I think someone <laughs> as sincere and authentic as Jenna does a really good job at just not trying to put the attention on herself and letting it be shared. Yeah. So, uh, after that, Delena came in and kind of talked about her experience. Uh, she's a she was a missionary kid, and then she turned right back around and became a missionary herself and had a bad time. Yeah. So Delena May, former missionary who told her really rough story about being a missionary in Bali and just kind of the fallout that happened there. Um, and a lot of what she talked about was about like settling conflict and differences of opinion within religious groups. And, you know, one of the things that she talked about was just how being a woman changes the way that you can disagree and the way that you can, you know, try to reconcile with people because there are certain expectations 
around like, you know, what the hierarchy is and and who needs to submit to who. And so I really just appreciated her frankness and openness about what was a really, really rough time in her life and for her family. Yeah, she strikes me as a person with a lot of integrity. It would have been so easy for her to be like, eh, it's not a fight worth fighting. I'm just going to roll over. But that's just not who she is. She believes something. She's going to act on that belief. She's going to she's going to be congruent. And I respect that about her. Yeah, absolutely. You grew up on the mission field. Do Did you see some of the things that she talked about? Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely like some of the clickishness that she described and just sort of the the hierarchy of like if you're close to people in leadership, then you've got more perks. And and I definitely related to this stuff about being a woman and a girl who has strong opinions. And so yeah, I definitely related to a lot of what she said and really appreciated hearing that from somebody else. Yeah. Why can't a girl have strong opinions in evangelical Christian culture? <laughs> I mean, I think it's something about like, you know, a, a Proverbs 31 woman is like humble and demure and always agreeable and, you know, doesn't challenge authority. And so it just sort of like doesn't fit in with the stereotypical church woman. And unfortunately, I I don't even think that that stereotypical church woman is based on very much in scripture. It's it's more a cultural thing. Yeah, as a species, we've managed to make that a pretty common situation. It's It, it crosses geographies, it crosses religions, it crosses uh, racial divides. Like patriarchy is just, we can't escape it as a, as a people group. Yeah, but we can try. We're working on it. Yeah. We got to dismantle that patriarchy. So episode four, uh, I talked to Elisa Schlupp, who is another religious trauma therapist. Um, and we talked about scrupulosity, which is like the intense anxiety and OCD symptoms that can come from growing up in a system where everything is either right or wrong. And you have to like constantly be working super hard to make sure that you're not sinning or messing up or disobeying rules. So I've seen that. I mean, you struggled with that. We've seen that with other friends, the family members that we've known. Yeah, I think it's weird. I, I always felt guilty that I didn't have more scrupulosity. <laughs> I thought that was a sign of sin in my life. Because I would be like, oh, no, it's 6 a.m. I need to wake up and do a 30-minute quiet time because that's what my youth pastor keeps telling me to do. And I'd be like, but I'm going to go back to sleep because I'm tired. And I was like, oh, no, God's going to be so mad at me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that very view that, like, it's virtuous and good to be, like, obsessive about your religious tasks or whatever, like, that's the problem itself because people like Elisa, who are really struggling with those OCD type behaviors, they can't even convince themselves that it's like a bad thing and that they should figure out how to stop because there's this idea that that's how we are supposed to be. You know, like if you're a good enough Christian or believer in whatever, you know, belief system you're in, then you're going to be constantly vigilant and on guard and like always 
double, triple checking everything. And so, yeah, I think, I think that feeling of guilt that you have is just kind of the non OCD way of experiencing the same issue. And that's not even like unique to evangelical Christianity that this goes way back. Mm -hmm. All of those kind of interesting and weird things that you would see like monks do in like the seventh, eighth century, they'd like, I'm going to do a vow of silence, or I'm going to like get up five times a night and pray. It's like, that's just them exploring different versions of scrupulosity. Yeah. Like which one makes God more likely to not smite me? (laughs) Exactly. So uh, after that, you had Kalila talking about her experience as an LGBTQ person in the church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Coach K uh, talked about just growing up at a Christian school and in a church and community where being gay was not acceptable. And she talked about just all the different ways that she tried to suppress and deny that part of herself and just the freedom that she's experienced since letting go of that old way of thinking about sexuality as if it is sinful to be attracted to whoever you're attracted to. And I really appreciate her style. She's a a life coach for survivors of religious trauma. And I like that she kind of takes a different approach that's more person-centered and more getting in touch with spirituality, but not in a rules-based type of way. Definitely some good stuff. Yeah. So are there churches where LGBTQ people can just be totally themselves? Absolutely. One of my later episodes was with Darrell Watkins. I think it's episode 13, Um, but he's the pastor of the Sunshine Cathedral in Florida. And our entire episode was just talking about what he has done and his church has done to create a truly open and accepting and safe place, particularly for members of the queer community. And so we we talked about the theology that he holds to and, and doesn't hold to and kind of some of the reasons there. And he takes a very flexible stance on some of the stuff that based on my upbringing would be considered heresy. But I think it's just undeniable listening to him and other church leaders like Jenna, who are just so accepting. It's undeniable to recognize that that's that's love. You know, like if love is the point, I think they're achieving it. Yeah. Darrell made me cry in his episode just for a second because he told the story about coming out to, I think it was his grandmother. Mm -hmm. And like she sat with it for a little bit and then she like knocked on his door a, a little while later and she walked in and just said, if I ever said or did anything that made you feel unloved, I am sorry. I want you to know that I love you. And I just cried in my car because I was like, I don't know why it's so hard to just extend unconditional love to people, especially family members, people who we do love. Yeah. Well, and and even just being willing to apologize, even if you're like, I had good intentions back when I said or did those things, like it's still okay to apologize for the harm that it inflicts. And I, I wish that more just human beings in general 
recognize that 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 doesn't cost us anything. It doesn't. One of the things I like about representation in media is increasingly over the last few years, we'll see examples of people coming out to their parents, either as uh, gay or as trans or as anything on that spectrum. And we'll see really good examples of parents reacting. And I kind of want that to like move its way from media into common language. Like, I feel like we should just train every parent as soon as they have a baby. Now, like, listen, this may not happen, but there's a chance, like a pretty significant double digit chance that this kid in 10, 15, 20 years is going to come back to you and say something you don't expect. Let me give you some words that you need to use in that moment. Yeah, it would be so awesome if we could just like equip parents with that. I mean, like how much pain would we be able to avoid? The other episode that really focused on the LGBTQ community was the one with Josh about conversion therapy. And Josh is one of my best friends. And so hearing him tell his whole story again was really painful, but also just such an important story to be out there. And for those of you who aren't familiar, conversion therapy is the intentional practice in religious groups to get somebody who identifies as queer to stop identifying that way. And that can be extremely, extremely damaging and abusive in a lot of ways. Therapy is the wrong word. Uh, There's nothing therapeutic about that process. It is trauma. Right. And the fact that it does have that conversion therapy name is so sneaky and insidious because I think, you know, people wrongly feel safe with that. Like, oh, it's a kind of therapy. All right. It's legit. Like, no, it is not legit. It's illegal in most countries in the world. Yeah, that was a really hard episode to listen to, but I'm glad he was able to share it. Mm-hmm. Your episode, which was right before his, just talking about suffering for the gospel. Yeah. So my episode and Caleb's and Adam's all had something in common, which is that all three of us were missionary kids in the Philippines. I knew both of them growing up. And so all three of us kind of told our different perspective of what that was like being a missionary kid. And man, those episodes, I feel like really made me feel known. It was just so surreal to hear other people articulating the feelings that I've experienced and to be like, oh my gosh, I'm not crazy. That was amazing. Yeah. So that like idea of suffering for the gospel is so much more prevalent in the missionary community than it is necessarily in a regular American evangelical church. Mm -hmm. And different religions emphasize that virtue of suffering more than others, but definitely the vocational ministry group tends to be really focused on self-sacrifice and the holiness of sort of selling all your possessions and following God no matter what. So I think the stuff that Caleb and Adam and I really related on was this feeling that our parents decided to make a a sacrifice that really, really impacted their families. And that wasn't a choice that we got to make for ourselves. 
And so there was sort of an autonomy there that got stolen. And I think that a lot of people who are preacher's kids or, you know, were in some kind of leadership long-term or even just vocational ministry themselves, I think they can relate to that feeling of sort of not having ownership over yourself because ministry is what owns you. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird sort of marriage of these two ideas. It's like, they're trying to replicate what Paul did in the new Testament of like going off and spreading the gospel to the un to the unwashed masses, <laughs> to the unwashed Gentiles. But Paul was single. He didn't have any kids. He didn't have a spouse. Mm-hmm. So we married that idea with the American dream of like having a spouse and, you know, two to three little kids. And we were like, this is going to work. Not a problem. And God is just going to make it okay. Yeah. And then we had two episodes with you in it, Marcus. Me. First one was about deconstruction. How did you feel talking about that? Pretty good. It's kind of nice to just put all those pieces together. I don't think I had ever told it all in one chunk before. It's just like this huge journey that took 20 years to do. And then I consolidated it into 45 minutes. I was like, okay, that's a summary of a lot of thinking and a lot of crying and a lot of like late night discussions that you and I had. Mm -hmm. It definitely sounded a lot easier than it actually was. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is true. It was hard and it was a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear for my eternal soul. Yeah. And then the second episode that you were on, you and I talked about the common signs and symptoms of religious trauma, just like impaired critical thinking and like difficulty expressing emotions and stuff like that. The one that stood out to me, it always stands out to me, is just that idea of poor boundaries. There is this culture in some religions where it's like, you don't have autonomy, you don't have body autonomy. Your family is everything. And when that message kind of gets mixed up, it can create these sets of rules that can make for a really unhealthy lifestyle. And at any point, a religious leader can come to you and invade your space and tell you how to live your life. Mm -hmm, For sure. And I think, you know, that's part of why recovering from religious trauma is so complicated and why it is such a long process is because you're actually relearning how to relate to other people. And like you're redefining what a normal, healthy relationship is supposed to look like. And that's so hard to do, especially if you aren't actively in healthy relationships. One of the other signs and symptoms of religious trauma that stands out to me is that kind of supernaturalism that like, focus on like angels and demons and the rapture and possession and kind of stuff like that. Do you think people can dismantle some of that, but still maybe hold on to some of the pieces of religion that they do get value out of? Yeah. I think, you know, when it comes to like superstition and seeing a a supernatural cause underneath everything, it, it's very much like a confirmation bias And I think just like we can work to deprogram our confirmation biases when it comes to anything, whether it's like gender roles or racial stereotypes or even just getting out of a bad habit that we don't want to be in, like 
we can do something about that. And I don't think it's any different when it comes to superstitious beliefs. And so like, even if you still want to believe in God and angels and miracles, that doesn't mean that every time something unexplainable happens, that it is that, you know, or it doesn't mean spiritual warfare is the cause of every adverse event. And so I think deprogramming that kind of looks like reminding yourself internally, you know, whenever those things happen and whenever that assumption happens in your brain where you jump to that conclusion, you can be like, pause, wait a minute. Is there another explanation? And like, what are the consequences of me just assuming that this is a spiritual phenomenon without even investigating further? Yeah, that seems like a much healthier and and less stressful way to live a life. Yeah. I mean, it does, it does require intentionality. And so in that sense, it might be stressful, but I think the, the impact is like you said, a a major decrease in overall stress. So the next one you had was Daryl Ray, who I think he was deconstructing before we even have a word for deconstruction. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, tons of people were deconstructing before deconstruction had a word like Martin Luther, like That dude was totally deconstructing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Daryl Ray wrote a awesome book called The God Virus. And he talked a bit about like just where that theory came from. The idea that we have these religious ideas that get passed from one person to another, from one generation to another. And we believe them as if they're obvious fact, but there's so much else at play. And so he talked a lot about people who are leaving a religious community and they're feeling isolated or feeling like they don't know how to figure out who they are. There's hope. And so he does a lot of work with the uh, secular therapy group where you can find a therapist that doesn't have any kind of religious agenda so you can feel safe. And yeah, he's got some good resources. He also talked a lot about purity culture. He did. I appreciate that. I think it's a topic we could probably dive into deeper in a future episode, but there's a lot uh, wrapped up in sexuality and it's got long legs because it reaches into the way church talks to and works with LGBTQ people. And it's got the way church talks about marriage and the way church talks about patriarchy. It's all wrapped up in this like kind of a little bit weird obsession with sex. Yeah. Like Freudian almost. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And then our last episode with Josh was he and I were talking about power and control dynamics in high control religion, just sort of naming the different ways that religious groups can wield power and control against members and recognizing those patterns. Mm hmm. What do you think is one of the most one of the biggest power dynamic that the evangelical church uses? Honestly, I think just the emotional abuse of telling people that they are fundamentally inadequate, that to me, that's the most, and, and, you know, I have an evangelical background and I think that's particularly prevalent in evangelicalism. And so that might be why I gravitate towards that as sort of like the most pivotal power and control dynamic. But I do think that 
the required reliance on the group that comes from telling people that they're inadequate and that they can't trust themselves. It's such a effective way to scare people out of thinking for themselves. Yeah. If you, if your baseline theology is that everyone is fundamentally warped by the power of capital S sin, then it's really easy to be like, oh, you're disagreeing with the way we handled this situation. Well, maybe it's because you're a sinner. Yeah. Like, oh, you're angry at me right now for what I just said. Hmm. Sounds like a sin problem. Maybe you should pray about that. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of other power and control dynamics. You know, there's a lot of churches that do a lot of financial exploitation. I think I see a lot of that in Scientology and stuff, but mm-hmm. that fundamental brokenness, the original sin doctrine is a lot of damage. Even in religions that don't believe in original sin, a lot of times there's still this idea of we've got the ultimate truth and the answers to things and you can't find them elsewhere. Like you've got to come to us if you want to figure it out. And that's, that's power and control. So uh, then you talked with Dan Koch, who was like formative in my original deconstruction journey. I listened to some of his earlier podcasts. I listened to Reconstruct. Oh, Reconstruct. That was the first one. Yes, that was the name. Yeah, we talked about just like his journey of reconstructing and, and choosing to stay in the Christian faith, even after sort of recognizing some of the potential toxic parts of religion. You pushed back a little bit on that, asked him some challenging questions about, you know, are there ways for us to replicate some of those healthy things in a way that don't also include all the kind of dangerous baggage? Yeah, you know, he was talking about the benefits of religion in people's lives. And to his credit, he was saying there's been a lot of research done, which there has, into the positive impact that religion can have. My qualm with that was that a lot of that research may be biased because, you know, of course, the people researching it always have an opinion that they're, you know, trying to prove or disprove. Um, but I also was, you know, just pushing back, like you said, on his assumption that religion is the only way to access those benefits, because I think there are things like community and, you know, doing projects that help the world, like those do not have to be religious. We can still accomplish that and get those benefits in other places. And if somebody has a healthy religious outlook and finds a healthy church and is still experiencing religion in a really cool way, like maybe they're going to Jenna's church or maybe they're going to Darrell's church, I'm certainly not going to stand in their way. I want them to to have those benefits. Yeah, I agree. And I think for people who have really examined it and they're like, yeah, no, religion is healthy for me. It's like, that is awesome. Just please don't go and tell people that It's the only way for them to find fulfillment because it may not be. You, uh, you mentioned something in that episode that you didn't really have a chance to dive into, but you talked about the empathy equation as you were talking with him. Uh, do you want to unpack that a little bit more? Kind of what really is that? Yeah. So the empathy equation is something that Josh and I actually came up with when we were creating our our consulting company, The Empathy Paradigm. 
And so the, the empathy equation is basically a formula for understanding other people and a formula for understanding yourself. And so the idea is that when you see somebody feeling or expressing an idea or maybe even doing something that you don't understand, all you have to do is look at who they are, where they've been, and what's been going on lately to figure out why. And so the formula is identity plus history plus context equals feelings, beliefs, and behaviors. And so once you know somebody's identity, their history, what what they've been through, what they've experienced, the trauma, the good stuff they've gone through, and then their context, meaning like, you know, what's stressing them out today and like, how did they sleep last night and, you know, all that kind of stuff, then the things that they are feeling, the things that they're thinking that they believe and the choices that they choose all of those things really make sense. It's a lot harder to other somebody and to totally reject them or the validity of their thoughts and feelings if you've done that empathy equation. You just used the word other as a verb. What does that mean? Yeah. So othering is putting somebody in a category that is completely different from me. You know, sort of like if you if you think of old tribes, you know, early humans, there was like our tribe and then there was the other tribe and everybody in the other tribe was bad and they were a threat to us. And we needed to like kill them as soon as we saw them, because that was the way we were going to survive. And our modern brains are not really all that different from early humans. And so we still think that way when we see somebody who appears to be from a different group, you know, we think, ah, they're the other, they belong to that other group and they're different. And I don't need to empathize with them because they are a threat to me. And so a lot of times when people do or say things that we don't agree with, or we don't understand, it's really easy to just default to othering them and being like, yep, I, they are insane. How could I possibly ever work with them or compromise with them or empathize with them? But the truth is, they're just another human who is operating off of their empathy equation. So if I'm a religious leader and I'm hearing all these scary stories about people deconstructing, uh, how does the empathy equation help me understand their experience? Mm, good question. The the fear part is really important, I think, to use the empathy equation for. You know, anytime somebody is expressing an opinion or a belief that just seems so contradictory to what you believe, instead of being terrified of that or outraged at it, maybe ask yourself, where did that come from? You know, like what things have they seen and experienced that genuinely have led them to believe that that is true? What parts of their genetic makeup, you know, their very identity, maybe it's their neurodiversity or their personality type, you know, or maybe how their family raised them and what they were taught was normal and not normal. Like all of those things go into how somebody sees the world and how they interpret what they see. 
And so when somebody's deconstructing, rather than taking that personally or being like, how could anyone doubt this thing that I personally know to be true? Well, it's not about you. It's about them. They've lived their whole life looking through their eyes and experiencing their experiences. And they didn't come to the conclusions that they did for stupidity. They, they, it's logical to them. It makes sense based on who they are, where they've been, and what's been going on. Well, what if we look at the other side of the coin? What if I have deconstructed and I am interacting with a religious leader who's saying all those same things that hurt me when I was growing up, how do I use the empathy equation to interact with them? That applies to more than just people who have deconstructed, but just anyone who has religious trauma. You know, I think empathy is just as important on that side as it is when you don't feel like you've experienced trauma because the intentions of most religious people are very positive, right? Like I think about my parents and the other missionaries that I grew up with, like maybe they had some misguided beliefs about culture and about how to help people and how to love people. But they certainly genuinely wanted to love people. And they genuinely thought that what they were doing was loving and helpful. And I think most people who inadvertently inflict harm aren't intending to do harm. They just are looking at life and they're looking at their choices through their own experiences and saying, this is what seems right to me. This is what makes the most sense to me. And they just don't have the benefit of other people's perspectives who might say, actually, that feels harmful, or actually, that doesn't feel loving at all. And so just like those of us who have experienced religious trauma want empathy from religious people about our decision to maybe distance ourselves or make changes in our belief system, we also need to offer empathy to people who are still in a religious system or, or are still sticking firm to what they've believed all along because they are just operating out of who they are, where they've been, and what's been going on. And it is abusive to try and force them to change who they are and what they believe. You know, like it's just as abusive going that direction as it was towards us. I love that because that I feel like the empathy equation can really help us build bridges where we aren't very good at building bridges, where we other people, because the, the equation makes it really hard to other somebody if you just take a little bit of time to think about their identity and their experiences and, and what's going on in their life. Yeah. If you've listened to the podcast, I mean, you've definitely heard me angry because I have a lot of anger about religion and religious trauma and about the patterns of harm. But I feel like I'm in a constant cycle of getting to that point and then reminding myself like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. These are human beings that I'm talking about. These are people just like me who have feelings and needs and who want to do good in the world. And like, if I am so angry that I'm putting them in a category in my head, that's like, that's just not even a real human. Yikes. Like that is territory that I don't want to go to. And I, I certainly, if I do go there, I don't want to stay there. 
And so as much anger as I have, I feel like that is balanced by a desire to really understand other people instead of just disagree with them. Yeah. You said something when you defined the empathy equation earlier, you said it's an equation for understanding others and yourself. How does the empathy equation help me understand me? I already know my identity and my background and my experiences. Mm -hmm. There's something about like when you empathize with someone else, you don't just cognitively know who they are and what they've been through and why that matters to them, but you're emotionally connecting to it and you're having compassion for them. You're like, wow, you know, that trauma that you went through, I can't imagine what that would have felt like. And I think a lot of times we don't do very well at empathizing and having compassion on ourselves even though you might know your identity and your history and your context, when you look back at that with the eyes of compassion and really just accepting the fact that this is the way that you have seen the world. And so the things that you chose to do and the ways that you managed to survive, those are valid. Maybe you have regrets. Of course you do. We all do. But you can love yourself anyway, and you can say, I understand that, and I have compassion, and othering myself, putting myself in that category of someone that's subhuman, that is not fair, and it's not helpful. Yeah, Brene Brown says in one of her books, talk about yourself the way you would talk about someone you love. Mm -hmm. And I think about that a lot because, you know, sometimes I'll make a mistake or screw up and I'll be like, oh my gosh, you're so stupid. How could you do that? And I'll just like berate myself. And it's healthy to think, hey, everyone makes mistakes. I'm human. I was under a lot of pressure that day. I had a lot going on. It slipped my mind. It's okay. And just give myself the same kind of forgiveness that I would give to you or a family member or one of my friends. Yeah. Well, and the best part about that is that when you take out that shame and that self-hatred, it's so much easier to be like, oh, I can just make a different choice next time. Like, because this isn't about me being fundamentally broken and inadequate, I actually have the power and the will to change my choices and to like seek healthier ways of coping with things, you know, and not only does that self-empathy make it safer to just live in your own skin, but it also helps you evolve and grow as a human a lot easier because you don't feel like you're fighting against your nature. I think that's why sometimes psychology and religion butt heads because uh, in psychology, it's important. The cornerstone of it is like, you have power over your life. You can make healthy choices. And there are religious groups that literally teach the opposite. You don't have power. You're corrupt. You are not in charge of your own life. And so it is undermining someone's uh, psychological health. Yeah, that reminds me of our most recent episode, which was with Catherine Queering, and we talked about attachment styles. And it was just about the like relationships that we form in religious systems, particularly with God and how that impacts our relationships with other people. So yeah, there's secure attachment, which is like, you're good, you're good to go, you have healthy relationships. But then the the three insecure attachment styles are anxious, avoidant, and disorganized. 
And so anxious is like, you can picture somebody who's clingy in the sense that they are afraid of being abandoned. They're afraid of being rejected and they are constantly seeking connection and approval and validation and affirmation from the people that they're in relationships with because they're attachment style has made them anxious about their attachments. Well, if we use the empathy equation with someone like that, it makes sense because if I have been abandoned or I have been neglected, it's going to explain why I'm so clingy to all my current relationships. Even if those behaviors are not healthy, I can understand why someone would do that. And aside just from history, I think identity makes a big difference there too. Like two people that grow up with the same parent you know, one might be anxious attachment and the other might be avoidant. And a lot of that has to do with personality type and temperament, you know, like there's, there's a lot of factors at play there, but avoidant attachment is kind of the more standoffish response. So if you have felt the need to like protect yourself from getting too close to people, or if you're worried that people are going to take advantage of you or like be too needy, then you might have uh, avoid an attachment style. Yeah. So to write on Netflix's coattails, that's going to be your Wednesday Adams personality type. <laughs> the number of social media representations of Wednesday's personality is just absurd. Like TikTok is hounding me. She, she, <laughs> she struck a chord with American pop culture. And so good for her. I know especially if you have a little bit of a goth bent like you do. Hell yes. And so disorganized is just going to, I'm going to mix and match those in crazy ways. <laughs> I don't like the word crazy, but yes, it's a, it's a mix and match of sometimes I respond with an anxious style and sometimes within an avoidant style. And usually that kind of depends on who the person is and how triggered I am in the moment. And a lot of times people with trauma tend to gravitate towards a disorganized style because there's just so much unsafety that they almost have to change their approach from one minute to the next. Yeah. So you kind of had an all-star lineup of guests for season one. That's a really impressive season. One of the things I'm noticing is that you had a lot of diversity. You've got people of color, you've got people from all genders, you've got people who are still in religion and people who aren't in religion anymore. You've got people who are neurodiverse. Why was that such a priority for you? I mean, I think that's, that's kind of the point of the empathy equation is that we need to listen to and validate everybody's subjective experiences. If you're in an echo chamber, just listening to other people that have had all the same experiences as you and have the same identity that you do, and, you know, they're kind of roughly struggling with the same current, you know, circumstances that you are, then that's not really going to stretch your empathy very much. And then when you encounter somebody that's totally different, you're going to other them right away. And so... My goal for this podcast was to hear from people all over the spectrum of religious experiences and responses so that none of us, myself included, get into a framework of just seeing things from our own perspective and forget that like there are valid ways to have totally other opinions. <laughs> so this is the finale of season one. 
Do you have any big plans for season two? Mm, yes. There's several topics that I really want to tackle. Like I really want to talk about like neurodivergence and potentially how that could impact someone's religious experience. I want to talk a lot more about patriarchy and purity culture and hoping to get some good survivor interviews on those and also hopefully some more experts, you know, who have really done a lot of time thinking and researching on those topics. Are there any that you, Marcus, think we should include? I would like to talk more about Christian nationalism, that sort of like weird marriage of like American Christianity and like white supremacy that we've sort of allowed to happen over the last hundred years or more, honestly. Yeah, there's some colonization themes in there. Mm -hmm. I think we could always dive deeper into patriarchy. It's a feast of various problematic behaviors that we could unpack one (laughs) at a time. A lot of times when I get a lot of like feminist rage, I have to remind myself that like Jesus isn't the one that invented patriarchy, you know, (laughs) and like that's, that's just a fucked up cultural thing. And it unfortunately has very pervasively seeped into most religions. Well, I think season one was amazing. It's a breakout hit (laughs) and I think it's just really cool that you're doing this. I know this takes a lot of work and a lot of emotional and mental energy, uh, but I think it's really needed. And we need to have this conversation a lot more and with a lot more people. And so I just am really proud of you. Oh, thanks, babe. (laughs) All right, everybody. We will see you soon. Bye. Bye. Well, that's all she wrote for this episode. If you have any questions, lean not on your own understanding. Email me at Anna at EmpathyParadigm.com. Bye.